Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. We do the air quotes here. We celebrate like, oh, I live alone. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a single guy and um, I have two housemates and I can't tell you in the dating world, it's like, oh, this guy's a loser. He, he doesn't have enough money to live on his own and he doesn't have, you know, his own independence and he can't manage his own life. He has to have roommates. And I'm like, I love having housemates. I think communal living, it's social, you know, and through this whole COVID pandemic, you know, I have housemates instead of being alone. And I, and I can't tell you how many um, single women that I've met through like dating apps and so on through COVID that they, they're like, they're going crazy and not crazy insane, but actually they're so lonely and isolated like you're talking about because they, they are alone. I don't even have that. I communal living's amazing. And you know, just on the side, I'll just be that much better of a partner for the woman, whoever I'm dating living with, because I'm used to living with people. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's, I don't, it's, it's, I don't see how it's a detriment in, in any way. You know? Right. And I think that's so going off, you know, a little bit on a sideways tangent. That's so like old school is not the right word, but like just so old school thinking, you know, if you, as long as you're not just like freeloading off of somebody and just like laying around doing nothing all day, what, even if you live with your parents, what is the big deal? If you're paying rent, if you're you know, doing what you need to be doing and you have a full-time job, why is that a bad thing? You know, it's... It, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, we, we frown upon it. We judge people for it, but, you know, it, it's amazing. And quite honestly, if I didn't have these housemates basically covering my mortgage, I wouldn't be able to be the entrepreneur entrepreneur that I am because to be an entrepreneur, the definition is to is to go beyond your financial means, right? To put in more financial means than than what's reasonable um, to do this project that is that you're passionate about. And I couldn't do that if I didn't have people covering my mortgage. So then I can put money into this business. Right. Exactly. And, and everybody everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but they don't understand the things that it's go rough, along man. with it. Right. <laughs> it is so rough, it's you know, rough. and people just don't, they are like, Oh, you know, and then the judgment on top of that comes where it's like you have the housemates or, you know, different ways to support your living situation. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, Oh, well, well, I'm doing that because I have, this all of these things that I'm working on so I need this to cover that but it's judged and so it's just like this whole it's nasty so circle. judged and, yeah. and, and what we value in society and I'll just say in the U.S. for now but it's it's really global but it's humanity at large but 
in in American society, you know, just valuing, you know, solo independence, money, you know, size of your house, what kind of car you drive. These are all just status symbols. And I don't know anybody who's ever been on a, you know, I watch award shows and stuff and I don't, I've never seen, and I wrote a blog post on this a few years back. I've never seen someone get up to receive an award and been like, thank you so much for this award. You know, what I really want to thank is my BMW and my 5,000 square foot house and my new Bose speaker system and my latest iPhone because my old iPhone, you know, it's only six years, six months old, but they came out with a new one. So I had to get another one, you know, and my, my Gucci purse and no, no, that stuff doesn't mean anything, but that's what we value in society. What we're not valuing is the love and relationships, which is what people do end up, you know, giving credit to when they're, when they're accepting their award. But when it, what, but the work leading up to it was neglect and avoid and, you know, um, dump on and, you know, to their family and their friends, you know? Yeah. So we're just so out of balance, you know, that's how I see it anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. It's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting way that we live in, in our society. In, we're like in, upside down. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, I hate to say it, um, but I'm, I'm going to go on the limb here, but you know, when COVID happened, it was really a clear sign of how unbalanced and how upside down our value system is because the people who make the most money in society, the actors, the athletes were the first jobs cut. They were the least essential jobs and the jobs, the people that, that are most essential had to work or else we would have all perished. The, the, truck drivers, the grocery store checkout people, the stock shelving people, the, the um, you know, restaurant people. I mean, we, you know, someone's got to put the toilet paper on the shelf, right? We're not all just swarming the truck in the back, you know? Right. And they're the first people, that we, we had to have those people and we pay them the least. Yeah. It's so upside down on what we value. And until we flip it, you know, look at the work that teachers have had to do. They basically had to like double the capacity of their job because they have to figure out a whole different way of teaching now for the virtual learning. And, and we don't pay them anything different. People want to say to pay them less now because they get to work from home. Oh, I mean, that <laughs> like, just, what? <laughs> that is bonkers. That's yes. just bonkers, you know? Right. So you don't even want to deal with your own children at home. So what makes you think that teachers want to deal with them in their own environment? I, you know, I've got, uh, you know, my goddaughter that lives with me, that's four and they were doing virtual learning. Whoever thought four year old virtual learning was a good idea should be put in an insane asylum because let I me mean, tell you, they, they're in their own environment. They, they're in their, their toys, their home. They don't want to sit in front of a screen when they're, I mean, they do with their tablets and stuff, but not, you know, I mean, if they're doing like Romper Room and Sesame Street and learning that way, okay, you know, right. but that, that's what a four-year-old can handle, you know? Right. I mean, 
Yeah, it, it's it's just so backwards. Yeah, know? I mean, imagine imagine if we pay if we had salaries because everything's about money. You know, imagine if if salaries for teachers were instead of thirty forty thousand dollars a year, what if they were you know a hundred and seventy to two hundred thousand dollars a year? Imagine you know the caliber of people that would be applying to those jobs. Not that the teachers that are there right now are low caliber. I'm not saying that at all. You know, they do it because they love it. They're not doing it for the money. But imagine what kind of competition or, or raising the bar for everybody could be. And if you wanted to be an actor or, or an athlete, great. But, you know, you're doing it because you love it. And, you know, it's not about, you know, raising the next generation of children. It's about entertaining, and there's real value in that. There's absolutely value in that, but maybe they should only be making the thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year. It would that would be a, just an idea. Yeah, just an idea. that that would be so interesting to watch. If that whole thing flipped, that would be <laughs> that would be crazy to watch. So, college. What did you um, go to school for? And is it the same thing that you're working on in now, or have you completely switched career yeah. paths? <laughs> Well, I mean, I basically completely switched, but there was sort of a natural progression. So I went to college for mechanical engineering. You know, I was always, you know, math and science and always helping my dad around the house my whole childhood, you know, making things, building things, fixing things, you know, all that kind of stuff. So mechanical engineering was a, was a very easy major to choose, especially because, you know, English history wasn't really my thing. Of course, I like that stuff way more now, but anyway. But I always had an interest in in human body, in medicine. You know, medical school was something that I toyed around with. Um, but I went on and got my master's in biomedical engineering, focusing more on the mechanical aspect as opposed to electrical engineering aspect. And, you know, got out of school and got a great job designing total joint replacements. That's It's kind of like the dream job for, for an engineer. You know, it's either... Either you're designing stuff for the human body or you're designing like cars and planes. You know, that's that's kind of what most engineers tend to dream about. Most engineers aren't dreaming about like, oh, I can't wait to design an HVAC system for a building. You know, like and some people like that, you know, that's great. But that's not what most engineers that I've been around thought of, you know. So yeah, engineering and, you know, implant design and doing some regulatory affairs like FDA kind of work and support and all. Then there was a time that I was doing medical device research um, in the areas of behavior change and behavior modification. So I really, I'm air quoting medical device because these are really loosely termed medical devices. It wasn't anything that would be regulated by the FDA, but it was things that were helping people live healthier, happier lives. Basically, the, the two big projects were, one, it was there was a fall detector. So we could, you remember the whole like push a button and I mm-hmm. fall and I get up? So we developed a fall detector that didn't require the person to press any button. It would automatically detect based on their behavior in their, in their home if something was wrong or not. And it would automatically call for help. So if the person was unconscious, you can't press a button if you're unconscious. So with our fall detector, or other kind of, um, you know, dangerous event um, that we could detect or potentially detect, it would automatically call for help. It worked great. And then that morphed into a hand hygiene compliance program that, again, did not require people to 
be identified. And that was like a big thing is like identifying someone who didn't comply with hand washing, like in a, in a hospital setting. And this is where the, the work that I did with like infection control, you know, this is a long time ago, it was like back in the you know late nineties. But what's amazing is how important that is now, you know, with COVID, like hand washing is like one of the best things that we can do. And, and that's what we showed. And, and we actually helped improve hand hygiene compliance in a hospital setting by 30%. And, and that's like unheard of in the hand hygiene compliance industry. The best thing ever before that was like putting a sign on the wall that says, wash your hands. And then that, that does like nothing. And after about three to five days, you don't even see it anymore. It's just in your subconscious, you don't even see it. So we helped improve hand hygiene. And, and that also translated to a reduction in nosocomial infections on the hospital floor over that same period. And a nosocomial infection is an infection that you get after you get to the hospital. So you might come to the hospital for like a broken leg or a heart transplant or whatever, um, but then you get a staph infection or you get a strep infection and now they have to treat you for that. And this is very preventable with hand hygiene. Okay, so that was this like behavior change stuff. So what we did is we would come up with ideas, you know, try to identify problems in the world, come up with ideas and pitch it to NIH and there's a program, the National Institutes of Health, where they give research money to help you develop this idea, do the research around it, and then turn it into a product that you can bring to the, to the United States market. This is a government, federal government program to, to bring small businesses so they can do this. Great. So one of the ideas that I had come up with, and I won't tell you this whole long story, but it was, it was a way to help, help people communicate and connect. Because it occurred to me, this is in 2001, it occurred to me that most conflict occurred because people were not sharing how they really felt or what they really thought. And, and this has huge ramifications you know, down the line, but this is where this, this biomedical engineering and medical device implants and designing implants for spine surgery, I've, I've designed that's where most of my patents are. It morphed into this, this tool to help people connect authentically and more specifically with the people that matter most to them. It's great to connect to a stranger, but there's no real risk if that connection doesn't happen. If you get rejected by a stranger, it doesn't really matter to you because it's like, oh, they're a stranger, I don't really care. But if you're rejected by someone that matters to you, a parent, a sibling, a teacher, a coach, it really hurts. And that's where your emotional health really takes a hit. And, and then you end up trying to do behaviors to compensate and ease that pain of being hurt emotionally. So that's what happened is this idea for helping people connect authentically. And then that put me down this road to um, emotional health and differentiating that from mental health and creating this product, this tool called Uchi, that that helps people connect. It's fun. It's light. And I actually launched a website to do it before Facebook and before MySpace. I had this social website live. Obviously, I didn't do a good job marketing it all as those as those um, as they did, but I was there before them. <laughs> That's okay. They they got they got money. <laughs> they got Some their from- yeah. From some people. So let's let's go into talking about the different types of health and wellness. 
because it's a huge part of domestic violence too, because the difference between mental and emotional abuse is there, but people don't understand it. So yeah, yeah let's, let's go into that a little bit. Yeah. And I would say, I would argue that most of the abuse, it's not mental at all. Most of the abuse is emotional. So in terms of wellness, well-being, I really see it, and there's lots of different models, but I really see it as four main components, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. I know there's other components, but I can argue financial or social fall under these other, these one of these main four. Um, they're all important. We need them all, but, and I don't really need to define physical, but I will say that to me, physical is, is your existence. You're surviving. You're alive. If you're physically healthy enough, you're alive. I mean, because nothing else matters if you're dead. So <laughs> none of the other elements matter. And I'll touch on spiritual very briefly, just because the definition that I use has nothing to do with God and nothing to do with religion. Because to me, well, I I'm atheist. Like, I don't even believe in the concept of God. Are you telling me I'm a human being and I can't be spiritually healthy or spiritual because I don't believe in God or your God or your religion? Well, you know, forget you. You know, I can be just as spiritual as the next person. So, so I feel like the definitions that really default to God or religion or some higher power, it really discriminates against those that don't believe what you believe. So the definition that I prefer for spiritual health is, is who are you at your core, your essence, your soul, your spirit of you, and I'm pointing to my center. Who are you? What gets you out of bed each day? What drives you? What motivates you? To wrap all that up, simply to say, you know, what is your purpose? Do you know and understand and are you pursuing your purpose in life? That's what drives you. Now, if your purpose is to serve God, great, go do that. I wish you all the best. But if your purpose is to help feed the homeless or to teach children, go do that. It's whatever gets you out of bed. If your purpose is to take care of your family day in and day out, go do that. And you can have big purposes and small purposes and, and many purposes or just one. So it's really what drives you at your core. And that's how I see spiritual health. Okay, so putting that aside, emotional health, I define, and then I differentiate it from emotional intelligence, which I'm a fan of, but it's different. So emotional health, I define as a person's ability to give and receive love. And by love, I mean love, connection, a sense of belonging. And, and I think one of the biggest problems, and we talked about it earlier, is when a person doesn't learn how to receive love, if they learn that receiving love is getting smacked across the face or criticized and put down and shamed in public, then, then that damages their emotional health. And if you don't learn how to receive love, then you're really going to struggle to give love to others and to give love to yourself. Hello, this is where I have the problem, right? Loving myself, my self-worth, my value. So, so, you know, we hear all the time that, I mean, it's basically a given that we have to love ourselves before we can love anyone else, right? I mean, that's, that's basically a given. I think that's completely wrong. I think we are under complete false pretense about that because no human baby knows anything about self-love or self-worth or self-awareness. 
even for the first six years of life, you know nothing about self-love, but you most certainly know the love of your parent or not. So, so if we don't learn how to receive love, and I can't tell you how many women I've dated over the years who really struggle to receive love, and it happens the same way with men. I'm just not trying to date men. When we struggle to receive love, we really struggle to give it. So that's really the root. And, and not receiving that love is painful. It hurts. And, and a human will do anything to avoid pain. And, and a human cannot distinguish between physical pain and emotional pain. Your brain activates the same way. So, so all you know is I'm in pain, do something about it right now. And in the absence of knowing how to truly give and receive love, we turn to behaviors to try and ease our pain, right? Alcohol, drugs, work, food. I mean, how many people eat their feelings? So, <laughs> right. So, I mean, I do too sometimes. So that's, that's really how I see emotional health. And then mental health, I see as our ability to focus, concentrate, think clearly, perform cognitive tasks. Most people are, are quite strong mentally. They're going about their day, they're doing their job, they're balancing their checkbook, they're going to school, they're doing their homework. Mentally, they have the ability. But if you get sidetracked emotionally because your parent is yelling at you or your spouse is yelling at you or you have to walk on eggshells every time you're at home because you don't know if what you say is gonna trigger somebody and they're gonna fly off the handle, and then threaten you physically or, or emotionally. But, but cognitively, we are, we are quite strong. And, and it's this idea that if we can't think our way through our problem, if we can't think our way through our depression, if we, if we know consciously like doing drugs is bad for us, then just stop, right? No, it doesn't work that way. Not to mention, you know, drugs do change your brain chemistry, but you know what else changes your brain chemistry? Criticism. You get criticized constantly. You will constantly be re releasing cortisol into your system, and that changes brain chemistry, and that happens before you're even six years old. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, ATL, or online at 2thriving.org.